Hello, and welcome to Mainly Matters. My name is Philip Torrey, and I'm your host for the lobster industry. Um, why I'm your host, I'm not sure. I, I feel like I always get asked to do certain things. People, my name comes up to people, and you know, new stations or something will call me about, I don't know, lobster boat racing or something that's going on in fishing. Be like, oh, your name came up a lot, probably because I'm a big mouth and I know a lot of people. But for whatever reason, I've decided to be the host of the Lobster Industry segment on this site, Mainly Matters. And I think it's a great thing because, uh, you know, we rely on just reading stuff in today's world. And and for me, I know I like to, like, hear people talk, hear questions and answers. And, you know, it allows people to uh, to see it from a different point of view. So uh, my hope is to, in future um, segments, to be able to have the people all around the industry on and uh and get their input from stuff like uh you know the the dealers who buy them the fishermen who catch them um the main lobster specimens association which is a, a huge thing for us and fighting against uh, stuff that we do whales windmills all the stuff that you hear about in the news and uh you know you know the wardens the people who enforce these laws the people who make these walls so uh so I'm pretty excited about that because I I think it's a good thing and uh I think I'm in a position where I I know a lot of people that uh uh can get on here and 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 really cover a lot of what goes on in our industry and uh, maybe so where you can hear both sides you know the sides of the fishermen the sides of the buyers the sides of the marine patrol the sides of the people that say we catch whales, you know, and, uh, and everything. Cause, uh, I think that's the way to go about it. You know, get all the information out there and then let people make their decisions. So a little bit about me. Um, my family has been fishing right here in Winter Harbor for a very, very long time. Um, I don't want to bore you with like a family history, but, uh, my dad's still alive. He's 85. Uh, he had to get done fishing in his late 70s uh, because of, you know, heart surgeries and, and, and some stuff happened that. But uh, my uncle fished uh, until he was in his 80s, you know, my grandfather, great-grandfather. And uh, uh, an interesting thing is that, you know, a lobster – Fishing became, you know, pretty commercialized, and they were doing good. And the state decided to appoint a commissioner and 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 wanted people to have licenses so they could keep track of all the stuff that went on. Um, a handful of guys in this area jumped in a vehicle and drove to Augusta and stood in line to get their licenses. And my great grandfather Elmer uh, was given the tenth lobster license handed out in the state of Maine. And uh, eventually, you know, that was handed down to my grandfather, Philip, who handed it down to my uncle, Douglas, who at 80, I think he was like 83, um, handed it down to me. And uh, it's not actually handing it down, per se, because in each situation, we all had our own licenses, but they were just handing down that number 10. And and all you have to do is write a letter how that was kind of in your family and you'd like, you know... Uncle Doug's was like like my nephew to have it, and uh, and then they lot that to you. So that that's pretty interesting. So uh, the tenth one that was handed out was my family, and that's it's literally all we've ever done. Um, it's important 
to talk about uh, now, you know, for people that come to Maine, you know, it's always lobster. It's all, it's all, you know, Maine's known for its lobster, you know, and, and most fishermen that fish are lobsters, you know, are going after lobsters, but that wasn't always the case. And, uh, you know, I'm just at the right age that unfortunately I saw a lot of, you know, great industries, um, come to an end because of, because of regulations. And, uh, although lobster is pretty, um, lucrative now. And when you ride different harbors along the coast, you're going to see huge, fancy boats with big engines. And most fishermen are driving fancy trucks and live in big houses. And, uh, you know, that wasn't always, it wasn't always the case. Um, so when I, I was born in 1972 and when I was growing up, the guys, you know, were, you didn't look at anybody as like, they're lobster fishermen. Uh, they were, but it was more like those guys are fishermen because they did a lot of things. You know, they weren't making a ton of money lobstering. So my dad and and all the guys around this area, you know, Korea, you know, Winter Harbor, Bar Harbor, Bunkers Harbor, you know, there was a lot going on. A lot of guys were saning for heron. Uh, in the winters, they were scalloping and shrimping. Um when I graduated high school in ninety, it was it was in the middle of the ground fish boom and we were we were just nailing the fish um ground fishing with guys from Jonesport and Stonington and uh and that was huge. Uh, there was also an urchin boom in the winters and, and people made a lot of money urchining. So it was like you you did everything you could to get by. There was very few people that just lobstered and uh in those days. And um, I would say the first boom that that was, you know, affected me in my life was probably in the late 70s, early 80s, maybe uh, shrimping. Shrimping was huge in our area. You know, guys would go out and fill their boats with shrimp and then make a tow and fill the net with shrimp and come in and unload. And, and it was this big thing. And that was the first time that I remembered some new boats getting bought and, you know, see some of the guys have a new pickup truck, and I remember uh, Dad putting an addition on our house, and that was all because of the money that was made, you know, was shrimp. And um, scalloping was always good from the time I was like a kid right up until I was just out of high school. You know, guys would rig up and, and go scalloping all winter. And uh, gill netting was huge for five or six years. You know, it's where I'm, you know, if it hadn't been for gill netting for me, um um, I probably wouldn't have been up and going in the lobster business as quick as I was because I, I was able to make a lot of money gill netting like in high school and then right after high school. So I was able to buy a hull and a boat and get it finished off and immediately start lobstering. Uh, and it's it's funny to how quick times change, you know. So that would have been in 1990 when I started, uh, you know, lobstering. I started out with um, 400 wooden traps, 100 that my dad had given me and 300 that I had bought off of fishermen in our harbor, uh, one of our big guys, Mike Falkenham. And, uh, and they, you know, round wooden traps. It took forever to get them ready. You had to put rocks in them to make them, you know, get soaked down and then haul them slow and get the rocks out. It was, it was quite an ordeal. But 
if you look how quick lobstering jumped on and the boom kind of started, that was in 1990. And by 1997, I had a high shear 35 Duffy lobster boat that I had had built and, uh, a, you know, a new diesel engine and, um, a federal permit and, you know, all new wire traps. So you're talking within about seven years there, you know, things went from very like old fashioned, not doing that great to really coming, you know, alive. And then fast forward, maybe, you know, 10 years after that, we were in the middle of, uh, you know, this huge lobster boom that we have now where, you know, uh, we were fishing offshore year round. All we were doing is lobstering. A lot of guys were just lobstering and not doing anything in the winter. You know, they were making enough that they would go from spring to Christmas, take them up and, and go to Florida in the winters and stuff. So this, this really, uh, took off pretty quick. And, uh, yeah, a lot of reasons that probably happened. Uh, when you catch something's number one predator, like ground fish, that's obviously going to help anything, you know, multiply and, and do well. Uh, that's probably part of it. Uh, they were, the, the water temperatures were changing. Our sheds were coming earlier and hanging on longer, you know, and, uh, and, and we were getting these big, uh, fluctuations, of these sheds and, and, uh, milder winters. I mean, a million reasons people could give you, but I, you know, I think a big part of it for me and is that, you had caught a lot of their predators. And uh, and the other thing was, all of a sudden, you had more efficient, good traps. And it was almost like we were farming them. You know, there's always bait on there. They can go in. They eat. If they're not big enough to keep, they get thrown it over. As soon as they land, they go right back in a trap. They eat, get thrown over. And uh, that obviously helped. Because, um, and guys were fishing, you know, year round. So that was the case anywhere. You know, these, these lobsters before they were counters, they were, you know, they were getting fed a lot. Um, Maine has also been at the very top always of conservation. Uh, we had stuff implanted years ago. If you, if you Google and you read about the, uh, you know, the beginning of, uh, lobstering in Maine, there was a, one of the first commissioners, Horatio Cree, uh, the guy was pretty amazing because he he could see way back then uh, when things got going, we needed a measure. And he really fought to put certain measures in place and uh, a smaller measure where we were, we had to have bigger lobsters than a lot of the other places that catch lobster. And we also had a large measure where you couldn't keep lobsters that were, you know, over a certain size. And for us, that wasn't real big. Uh, we can keep maybe, a, you know, it's about four and a half pounds. If you if you get one that's got uh, big claws, maybe a five-pound lobster would be about as big as we can legally keep in Maine, whereas other places could keep them as big as they could catch them, you know. And uh, that really helped. So I think uh, conservation is another thing that helped a lot. And it would be hard to argue that because, you know, there are a lot of fisheries that, you know, went belly up and, and, and didn't do well because of because they didn't have that conservation in place. Um, we've also always worked with, uh, you know, the oceanarium, hatcheries, you know, you know, bringing in big female seed lobsters that were a certain stage and, and they would take them to the oceanarium, hatch them out. We'd let the babies go and, and all that thing. So, you know, one thing about us is we've always done 
you know, what was asked of us. And, um, and that's, that's where we are today. We, you know, even with the whale regulations, you know, when they, when they first started these whale regulations, it was us main fishermen that were putting the breakaways in, putting the tracer in our rope and abiding by these rules. And yes, we fought it and we didn't like it. We didn't want to do it, but we did it. And, uh, over the years that would change and we'd, we'd do more regulations and we got rid of our floating rope and put sink rope on our, uh, on our tailors where to where the two traps tie together or three traps or 20 traps, you know, on bottom. And that was probably the worst regulation we had to deal with because it led to a lot of entanglements and chafed off gear. And it was, it's a nightmare, but, but we did it. And, uh, and in a, in a world of a lot of fake news, um, I would plead with any of you that are listening to this and don't know anything about lobstering to, you know, get on your phone, computer, Google stuff, look for information. And you will see that whatever we were doing all along the way obviously helped because we do not catch right whales. We don't kill right whales. It, it, it just doesn't happen. That's a fact. If you want to look at the statistics and you'll see where they've been caught or entangled or died, you know, you, you're going to see a lot of taking place, um, you know, in Canada and a lot of taking place south of us uh, for anywhere from Cape Cod, you know, to North Carolina or anywhere. But you will look at those statistics and you will see that we as Maine lobster fishermen don't catch the whales and we're not you know people look and think that we're up here making money and, and, and we just kill right whales but that's not the case and uh i hope in future segments to to get you know more people to cover that subject more and uh and, and be able to present you with some facts but for today we're talking about lobsters so uh one thing that uh did we don't know exactly when you could say commercial lobstering like first started um and i didn't want to make this too boring with getting into all that early stuff but what we do know is that you know canning in the mid 1800s like by by 1845 i think there were like 23 canneries on the coast of maine from down around Cutler to Portland. And, uh, you know, they're, they were canning everything, you know, whatever they little tiny ones, whatever they could do, they're, they're putting these, um, in canneries and, uh, and, um, with no, you know, with no conservation, in fact, they were just taking everything, you know? And so the cannery thing, you know, it started to go belly up like in the, uh, Oh, the 1870s or something. And, and, and as it did, the start of commercializing fresh lobsters began. Um, and I'm sorry to bore you with all this, but I, I'm looking at this like people listening don't know anything about fishing. So uh, when they had to commercialize fresh lobsters, it became how can they keep them? And that's uh, that's when the lobster pound started. Uh, 1875, the first lobster pound um came up on on final haven fittingly and if you don't know what a pound is it's uh it's an area where there's like uh you know uh they could they, they they can pull a barrier so if you've ever rode by in maine looked around and you look and it looks like some big circle thing wooden thing around a little cove it's probably a lobster pound and how that works is the that barrier goes all the way to bottom and what dealers would do They've got it buried off so lobsters can't get out. And now it was a way that 
they could buy lobsters, fishermen come in, sell their cat catch, they weigh them, the guys pay them for them, and then they they're putting them in this pound, basically just dumping the crates or whatever into this pound. And they can live in a natural environment. They're, they're swimming around on, I mean, bottom, crawling around on bottom. You know, they throw feed into them and they feed them. And they're going in there. A big part of it was for shedders. When they had shed their shell and they were soft, you know, they could put them in there at that low price. And then they feed them. And then when they harden up and, uh, and you know, get stronger, then they could actually be shipped to different markets and sold at a higher price. So, you know, the, the ideal situation is they're putting them in there, let's just say two bucks, and they're taking them out a few months later with a hard shell and selling them for four bucks and and doubling their money. Um, obviously, in those early days, it was a learning experience, and uh, you know, there's no real way to keep an eye on them. You don't know how many are dead. You don't know if maybe there's a hole in your barrier and some escape. And and I'm sure there were a lot of nightmares, but a lot of people tried and failed, and there were a lot of people that. Uh, tried and did really well. And uh, so the pounds really changed uh, lobstering because now it was a way that lobsters should be kept for a while and not just had to be sold and eaten that day. So that that made a big deal. And um, the pounds continue to this day that, you know, right, right to this day, there's guys that have pounds, you know, they come in, catch them, they dump them in their pound and uh, pay their stern men. And, and when the time is right, the price goes up, it's they wait and then they you know, they sell them, you know. And uh, as the pounds came up and got going, uh, we never had a pound here in Winter Harbor. Um, there was one in Bunkers Harbor and uh, some down east, you know, the Francis's had some down there and uh, and the Kellys and, and the pounds were there. But, but here we didn't have them. But what we did have was lobster cars, which was, uh, you know, it was a similar thing um, or a similar idea. Uh, these big wooden containers that the guys usually built themselves and they had a rack system on them. So if you pictured a big box and it had like racks stacked up, I think five, six racks. And uh, he took the doors off. You'd be looking at the top rack. So let's say dad had these and uh, he had them that held 2,500 pounds. The co-op had a bunch of them. So when you're, when you're, when you're carrying lobsters, you're you're saving your best lobsters at that time. You know you're the, the the healthiest ones with two claws that aren't too soft. You know you, you put them aside, the other ones in a different way, and you put these ones in your car. So every day when I used to come in with Dad, you know we'd put X amount in each pin, you know, and you have to feed them, and uh, you know there's there's a lot to it, but it, it's a pretty simple process. They, they this car is built as these uh, drop slots down the middle of the car that go to each different. Um, pin and um so you get it full say you get them both full you got five thousand pounds which when i was a kid that's a lot to have in the car you know and you put them in there at 250 and uh, i remember one day one year uh we got five bucks cash dad did and i remember the guy like counting the hundred dollar bills off on the top of a bait barrel in the bait shed and for me at that age it was like wow i mean this was crazy to see that much money but uh, you know there was something to it because you 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 needed a good reputation because you know if you if you put good lobsters in and you and you took care of them and you and you handled them right and and they were good and it came time to sell them it meant something the buyers wanted those lobsters you know and uh, they'd pay top dollar for them and plus if you did that you didn't have a lot of them die so you knew you were going to make a profit and if it went the other way 
you know, you you just weren't taking good care and kind of throwing anything in there, then then a lot of them die and a lot of them shoot their claws off. And uh, now when you get ready to take them out, you know, you've, you've got dead ones and then you got junk that guys don't really want. And, uh, and, and in this business, uh, you know, reputation means everything. So if you had good stuff, you sold it, you, you know, guys liked it, then you, you were pretty assured that year after year, you know, if you did it again, these guys were going to buy you lobsters. Whereas if, if you didn't and you had a bunch of dead ones, not only would you maybe like lose money and people might not want your lobsters. So that the carring thing was also a, a big deal. And uh, the only reason I'm bringing that up is I'm just trying to kind of walk you through like how lobstering in general went from just, you know, something guys did and made a little money to, to kind of getting bigger. And then and the pounds and the cars were, were a big, you know, big part of that. So now, um, you know, lobstering, the, the, the live market is, is, is going pretty strong. And, uh, and now by the fifties, by like the 1950s and everything I'm telling you, you can Google or look at, and, uh, you can get more exact numbers, but, but anyway, so by the 1950s, the live market is up and going, you know, pretty good. And, and main fishermen are catching about 20 million pounds, you know, a year, uh, in 1960, they caught 24 million, um, which was a high. But by 1965, those numbers would take quite a dive, and we wouldn't get back up over 20 million pounds until 1979. Um, and that, and you know that also could have been because, like I said earlier, there were guys doing other things. They weren't just lobstering. You know, other things had come big. You know, shrimping was big, and 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 you know, I'm sure that that probably directly affected you know those numbers you know just maybe maybe that there just weren't lobsters there but they were guys making money doing you know other things um in the 80s uh that was pretty consistent the 80s uh poundage held pretty consistent uh and then it took a jump in 1989 to 23 million pounds but then it took a substantial jump to 28 million pounds in 1990. And I remember that because that's the year I graduated. And I know dad was doing good. The co-op was doing good. And it was almost like, I can't wait to to get out of school because I, I knew I was going to make a lot of money gill netting in the summer. And then I knew like, wow, I got to get a boat and 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 get going for the fall lobstering because it, it's going to be good. But we, uh, we had no idea what was in store. We knew it was getting good, but we didn't know just how good it was going to get. Um, and then following along the trend there, so so you had that twenty eight million in nineteen ninety. By the late nineties, those numbers were sneaking up on fifty million pounds, and uh, and in nineteen ninety nine, that mark was reached for the first time with fifty three point five million pounds. And now, when you 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 look at turning into two thousand, that's kind of where the lobster boom. You'll hear that term a lot. Of people, you know, kind of gets going here. And uh, I remember in 2001, by now, you know, I've got a lot of money invested, got a boat, and I just think it's going to last forever. A lot of us did. We're making money hand over fist. We've got all the coolest cars, boats, everything's great, you know, and it's like you don't think there's anything could ever go wrong. And then in 2001, it was a huge drop, uh, 9 million pounds from 2000 to 2001, and we went down to 48.6 million pounds. And, 
it was it was like oh sh- shoot here we go you know this is it this is what the old timers have been telling us about it's gonna collapse we're gonna have it I remember my dad being like I hope you get all that shit you bought paid off because I told you it was gonna go the other way and uh, oh man it was it was like what happened is this really true but just a fluke year you know because we would rebound the next year in two thousand two was sixty three point six million pounds that might be one of the biggest jumps from one year to the other and then we didn't look back you know then it then it went crazy by uh by 2010 we were nearing 100 million pounds and after 2010 we didn't go below 100 million pounds for the next decade and uh we got up to um i know we, we, we had 130 million pounds 120 i think we went like five years without going below 120 million pounds. And the record for that was in 2016, where we caught 132.6 million. And that was a value of like 540,671,000 bucks. It was, it was crazy. But there were a lot of things that led to that. It wasn't just that there were more lobsters. It was like I talked about earlier, basically farming them, you know, the, you know, feeding them, they're going out, guys are fishing year round, but But probably more than anything was the way we were getting them. You know, you had a lot more fishermen than there had been in previous years, and you had a lot better stuff. I mean, I I went from being in high school and my dad uh, building wooden traps and setting it the chair every night, watching Dan Rather and knitting the heads for his traps and, uh, you know, cutting the wood in the woods and taking it to the sawmill and all this type of stuff to just maybe like 10, 12 years later, you know, all wire traps, big traps, you know, all the different things are double headed traps and, and, you know, 10 and 12 inch haulers were being replaced with 14 inch haulers and then eventually 17 inch haulers. So that was another big reason. It wasn't just that there were more lobsters there, but there were more fishermen catching them and and they had the means to do it you know big boats uh big diesel engines that weren't broke down all the time big hydraulic haulers that could rip them aboard Uh, most of us had two guys behind us you know and we were just going 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 um and at some point in there like uh 96 the state decided okay we need a trap limit and they imposed a limit. It's an 800 trap limit. When they first did it, um, you know, if you had your 1200, you could keep them that year, but then you had to go to a thousand the next year. And then you, the third year, you would eventually have 800. Uh, you know, a funny thing is that at that time, there were a handful of guys, probably in every area, that people would say, yeah, he fishes a lot of traps, you know what I mean? But but the guys that were fishing a lot of traps, they were, they were working hard. They were going at it all the time. And uh, it wasn't a huge issue. You know, there wasn't like everybody's fishing too many traps. There were a few guys. But, but once the state put that trap limit on, it had kind of a reverse effect because it made it so like everybody. If guys that had only ever in their life fished 500, they felt like they had to fish 800. You know, you had guys just – getting 800 traps and setting them and they couldn't even begin to tend them. You know, they're all grassed up and dirty, but they wanted to be able to say, Hey, I got 800 traps in the water. And uh, so I don't think it helped. I think the trap limit, if anything, made more 
traps in the water. And uh, the other thing they did at that same time um, was they broke the state down into zones. And uh, from from like Canada to New Hampshire, they broke it into zones. So zone A would be from Canada to Scudic Point, which is right here in Winter Harbor. And then zone B would start at Scudic Point and go to Swans Island. And zone C from Swans Island to North Haven. And these, these are rough. I, I'm just, you know, not the exact spots, but pretty damn close. Zone D, Owls Head to New Harbor. Zone E, South Bristol to Small Point Harbor. Zone F, Oars Island to Harpswell and Portland. And zone E, Portland to New Hampshire. And all this meant was, uh, you know, like if you fished in zone B, where I do, I had to fish 51% of my traps in that zone. And I could fish 49% in another zone. Um, it was kind of weird because the way they did it, uh, a lot of territorial places up and down the coast of Maine, um, you know, like in, in, you know, there's always a spot where, each harbor knows I probably shouldn't go east of that or I shouldn't go west of that. And you would have thought the state would have got some input from fishermen on where maybe those lines should be, but they didn't. So it was just kind of like, okay, here's where this is, here's where this is, here's where this is. And uh, the thought was if you, you know, tags, the way they were going to enforce this is tags. You had to buy tags every year. So you get 800 tags. Every trap has to have a tag on it if the wardens go out and haul your trap and they haul it up and it does not have a tag on it they can take your trap and they can give you a fine if that happens a couple times you're probably going to lose your license for three years and kind of the same way if, if you know they're hauling your trap and it's not in your zone and you don't have you know the zone tag in there then same thing you're probably going to get in trouble for that so that's uh People always ask, how, you know, how do they enforce that? And that's how they do it is because of those tags. You have to have that tag. Every year you get um, a different color. So, you know, 2020 might be red, 2021 might be yellow, and that's – you only have those 800 tags, and that has to be on your trap. So that's how they enforce that. Um, another thing that they have to enforce the wardens is you know the measure so if you're you're fishing and you're coming in this is for people that don't have a clue again we have somebody with us our men behind us that are baiting the traps and they take a, a measure and they put it on the back of the lobster from his eye socket back and it has to be that measure if it's not it's illegal you throw it overboard if it's if it's too big, you throw it overboard. So, you know, if a warden pulls up on the side you to check you or you come in to sell your catch and there's a warden standing there, that's what they're going to be looking for. They're going to check your license and then they're going to be measuring your lobsters to make sure that your lobsters are legal. And uh, those are those are two of the big, you know, the big things law enforcement-wise that we, that we deal with. We have to have tags on our traps and we have to make sure our lobsters are legal. Um some stuff you read about in the paper, uh, you'll 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 hear the term trap molestation. That's uh, you know, I don't like somebody, so I'm I'm cutting their traps off, taking a knife and cutting it so they can't get it. That's trap molestation, and uh, then hauling someone's traps. So I'm I'm you know, I'm doing good in an area, and maybe I don't think this guy should be in this same area. I don't like him, so I haul his traps up and I take the lobsters out of him and then set his traps back. Those are the other big things that wardens enforce, and uh, you know, if you if you're if you're molest molesting someone's gear or you're hauling the traps, you're going to lose your license, and uh, you're not going to be able to fish. Um, 
the the co-ops with the you know with the with the thing of the cars coming and the live thing, uh, the co-ops became big. We were able to build our co-op up. So so you'll talk to guys. You may know someone from Maine, and they 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 sell to a certain buyer. So, or you're sitting there to dock, driving around, visiting, sightseeing, and you see a lobster boat pull in, and all of a sudden he's bringing all of his lobsters and crates up, and he's putting them in his pickup truck, and he's bringing bait down and putting it in his boat. Maybe a fuel truck comes, and he puts fuel in the boat. Those guys are like independents. They're 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 taking their lobsters to a certain buyer, and he's probably selling them bait, and. Uh, you know, and, and that's how they get, and that's how they get their pay. Some guys do that because they don't have an option. Some guys do that to get a little, uh, you know, a, a little more money. But a lot of us up and down the coast sell the co-ops, um, you know, uh, in each area. And and the co-op in Winter Harbor was founded by my dad, my uncle, their cousin, and some other fishermen in 1972. And it started out small. They built a wharf. They put a bait set on it. And, uh, you know, that's where they would have hire a guy to, you know, every day they came in to weigh up and lower their bait down to them. And as this lobster boom, you know, hit, and it was, you know, us younger guys, you know, dad was still the president. And there were some of the older guys on the boards in their 70s and 80s. But there were a lot of us that were 30 or whatever. Uh, You start to vote for stuff you know, bigger. So we end up redoing a wharf, making the wharf a lot bigger. We put a huge bait shed on it. You know, uh, we build a big, uh, bait cooler, um, you know, and then even like a big tank room where we could hold 300 crates of lobsters if we had to. And you, and, and all of that was like needed because, you know, bait shortages, you don't want to find yourself in a situation where lobsters are coming on thick and you don't have bait. So that same type of thing, went on up and down the coast everywhere, you know, Stonington, Jonesport, both huge areas for lobstering. And, uh, that, that's the type of stuff that took place when, when the boat started getting, you know, getting bigger and, and the catches started getting bigger, the, the, the co-op started getting a lot bigger and, uh, and a lot more money was, um, flying around and being invested, you know, trap companies started popping up and there were a lot more traps being built and a lot more engines being sold and the economy in Maine, um, you know, lobster was always big, but then I would say from the late nineties till now, um, it really became huge where, you know, you have fabrication shops, you have, you know, fishing gear stores and, uh, engine dealers and, and everybody was really busy and doing, uh, really well. And, uh, that branches out a million different ways. So, you know, what we do here, um, we have a lot of pride in, you know, that's, that's something, you know, any fishermen, you know, they grew up doing this and they probably would never do anything else. It was a bonus when we could start making a lot of money, but for a lot of us, it was what we were going to do, whether we made a lot of money or not, because it was our way of life. And it was, uh, you know, it was all we'd ever known. And, um, we probably wouldn't have it any other way. And, uh, there's a lot of stuff that we, that we struggle with now that we face because, you know, it's just 
like I say, the people can throw something out there in a newspaper and you read it. I can't tell you how many people I've met in my life, you know, uh, come to Maine and visit, or I've been on a cruise ship in the Bahamas, or you get talking to people in Maine. And, and, and a lot of times people will say, you know, does it ever bother you to kill whales? <laughs> you know, like, like, like that's a real thing. Like that happens to us. And uh, I always tell them, I said, well, I, would, I wouldn't know, you know, it's all I've ever done, but I wouldn't know. And uh, that's, uh, that's a huge problem, you know, and um, it, it, it's taken over and we deal with such, such regulations and we have such fights. And uh, I always try to explain it to people like this. Um, and uh, pay attention to this if you're if you're not a fisherman. If you drive to Bar Harbor or anywhere on the coast of Maine, and it's August, and you're like looking out at the water, and you're thinking, "Oh my God, look how many you know, look how many buoys there are right there," you know, and you see all these lobster buoys, and you th- and, and in your mind you think, "My God, those, there's that many buoys like everywhere." Well. In the state of Maine, we have a little over 6,000 people that have lobster licenses. And, you know, on paper, your head would say, well, you know, let's, over 6,000 lobster fishermen with 800 traps apiece, that's 5 million lobster traps in the water. And you ride down there to buy a and you look at all of those buoys, you say, oh, my God, that's just crazy. Well, first of all, those, those numbers are really screwed big time because not all those lobster fishermen have 800 traps. Not all those lobster fishermen even have traps in the water, you know, but that's what they go by. They go by that number. So there's a lot of lobster fishermen that fish 300. There's guys that are still fishing. They're 80, 90 years old. They might fish a couple hundred traps. You know, they fish their whole life and they do it. Um, the laws are for a young guy that once he first gets his first license after going through like his student license, um, he's allowed 300 and then he can build up to 800. There's a lot of guys that fish, you know, in the summer, maybe they fish three or four months in the summer and they fish three or 400 traps. So, so there's all these different aspects of lobstering, you know, no right, no wrong, but, but there's a lot of different stuff that goes on. But, but the problem here is, about everybody is going to order 800 tags because although it's not in place now, we Maine has it so we cannot sell our licenses. The natural thing that people do is they look at Canada and and in people's mind, they believe someday I'm going to be able to sell my license. And if I haven't always ordered 800 traps, I might only be able to show that 300. So I'd have to sell a 300 trap license and it wouldn't be worth as much as an 800 trap license. So about anybody that has a license is going to order 800 traps. And, and, and the good majority of us are going to fish all those 800 and wish we had more, but we can't. But, uh, you know, most guys that are going at it are going to fish those 800 without any problem. But some guys don't have a boat, they're not fishing, but they still every year are going to order their tags and their license and get those 800 tags just because they need to. If they don't, they'd lose it. So they keep ordering it. And some guys are only going to fish 300 because that's what they like to do, but they're still going to order the 800. So so those numbers, when you look on paper, are always going to be screwed. There's no way to to you know get those exact numbers out. But, but the most important thing here is to know that of those – over 6,000 licenses that you see, 
roughly only about 1,200 have federal lobster permits and can fish beyond the three-mile line out where the whales are. That's where I fish. That's where a lot of my friends fish, you know. So don't ever think uh, when you're reading something in the paper and uh, and you're, you're just – Love whales. We all love whales. If I see a whale, I usually stop hauling, go over and watch it and take videos of it and send it to my kids and my friends or whatever. But don't ever like ride around the shores of Maine and look off and see all these lobster buoys and try to picture in your head, how is a poor whale ever going to be able to swim through that? Because that is absolutely not like that. Out where the whales are, there's only about 1,200 of us, probably probably not even 1,200 because there are guys that have permits that don't fish outside the three-line and hold on to them. But, but anyway, it's, it's much more wide open and no issues with whales, and I can't say that. You know, I can't say that enough. So just remember that when you're thinking of 5 million traps and all these licenses out where the whales are, there's nowhere near that. Um. Another thing to talk about is people are always like, you know, oh, you should sell your lobsters here. You should sell your lobsters there. You shedders, you know, put a, put a thing on the side of the road. And, 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 and that stuff happens, you know, yes. But in the summertime, when a lot of these lobsters are getting caught, there's not a, there's not a, uh, they don't have a great life expectancy out of the water, you know. So they, they usually, we bring them in in our tanks. They go right into crates. Our guys weigh them and put them right back in the water in the tanks, you know, and they stay alive. So it's not as easy to come in, you know, and, and say, yeah, you know, I could just sell my lobsters. You know, you guys nailing lobsters, getting a couple thousand pounds of lobsters. You're not just going to throw them in the back of your truck, park on the side of the road and, and, and sell them. It's a nice thought, but it's not really uh, realistic. And uh, later on in the year when uh, – they harden up a little bit. It, it, it is much easier, but um, that shatter price is uh, is low, but it's hard to keep them alive. And uh, that's why we get them in and we, we get them right into the tanks and they go to the restaurants and stuff. And that's people love to eat them in summer. They're easy to pick out and everything. But that's uh, sometimes where, you know, you get into trouble because when the sheds, it used to be like, They'd shed up in the rivers at a certain time, or they might shed in certain areas at certain times up and down the coast. It was always like, oh, they're catching them in Goolsboro Bay, or you know, down to the west, they started getting some. And there was always this thing my whole life where you kind of had this, you know, certain date where you knew, like, okay, if they're getting them, we get them about two weeks later. And it was pretty good because it, it kind of balanced out and the price, you know, would be accordingly. But as water temperatures uh, warmed up and stuff, boom everybody's getting them you know they're getting them all on the coast and we're getting them out in federal waters and kids are getting them in in skiffs and you just have all these lobsters that can't be shipped to china or shipped across the united states because their shallots are too short and uh too soft and that's uh when you hear about in the past when there's been issues that's usually what it is it's just that you know everything worked out perfectly that all the lobsters decided they wanted to shed right then. And when that happens, you you can't, you know, put them in boxes and ship them all over the place because they wouldn't live and stuff. And that's usually when you hear that you'll see those lobster prices go down. My uncle always told me, you know, like the lobster price is a sure sign of how many lobsters there are. Right now it's, uh, you know, March in Maine, the price is $10 and something. Which is like, wow, that's a great price. Well, yeah, that's because there's 
not very many lobsters. And uh, in the summertime, when guys are complaining and saying that price is horrible and stuff, you know, two bucks or whatever, that's probably because there's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lobsters being caught. So those two things are always directly related. Um, something that's really put a serious uh, issue for us is bait, herring. Uh, you know, they, they cut the herring quota down and then they cut it again. And uh, in just a few short years, uh, you know, we, we buy our bait in like a fish tray. So like in our co-op and uh, just to give you an idea, like within the last 10 years, those trays went from being like $38 a tray to about 110, 100, 110 this year. And, uh, and that's hard because, you know, you, you, you got to get the bait and we try other forms of bait. You know, there's pogies. A lot of guys are using pogies. I've used pogies and there's different forms of hard bait and stuff. But, uh, you know, heron's always been one of the top things that we all want and it's cut, uh, vastly cut, you know? And, uh, so that makes your expenses go real high. Um, right now the, the diesel price climbing all the time, you know, that that's, those expenses are, are really high. And uh, those are the some of the bigger things that we have to worry about between the regulations, the herring, um, the fuel prices, and now these windmills. You know, uh, that, that's a lot of stuff on the plate. It seems like, you know, things are going good, but whenever they get going good, you have something different that you're fighting against. Um, a couple of things here I had written down. It's kind of funny. I was just trying to think of all the different questions that we get asked and we get asked a lot of questions in the summers and by tourists and stuff um what is that little sail on the back of the boat uh a lot of the old timers had a sail like we have a sailboat it's called a riding sail my dad always had one my uncles always had one um and what those were were a lot of times it was for the guys that fished by themselves back when there wasn't a lot of lobsters. Uh, guys wouldn't take a stern man or they might only take a stern man in the fall, so they fished by themselves. And with that sail down, they could tend their traps, you know, and do their thing and know the bow was going to stay into the wind. And that's that's what that is. And and you can't just leave them down all the time, believe me, because I've tried to use dads before and it'd be doing, going great and then all of a sudden – going right in circles, but it has to be with the tide and the wind be the right way. And then, it, then it works. So that's what those little sails are. It's not so if they break down, they can sail home or whatever. Um, another question I get asked a lot of what are the racks look like a shopping rack around the boats. Um, you see those boats, they probably fish offshore. See a lot of the big boats have the rack that goes all the way around one side and comes up the other. And what those are for is they're fishing in worse weather. You know, uh, the fall weather gets worse, winter weather gets worse. So that holds the traps. And if it comes time to shift traps and the weather's bad, and you want to shift them to better fishing grounds, you know, that's going to lock them in there so you don't lose them overboard. And that's what those big racks are. Um the back of the boat being cut out, you know, people ask that, why is there no stern in that boat? And uh, a lot of times those are guys fishing trawls. Everybody fishes different. So if you hear the term a single, that means that there's one trap. A guy's going out and he's going to haul a hundred singles. Every buoy that he gaffs and brings up, there's one trap. Um, pairs, it's two traps. Uh, where I fish right now, they, uh, they passed a law that you can just fish fives. So, you know, we haul it up and there's five traps there we tend. 
Um, you go a little to the east end, zone A, and there's 20. So when you get that up, that has two end lines on it, a buoy on each end, and there's 20 traps. And that's that's what they call trawls. So that's that's what uh, you hear when you hear those terms. And uh, one of the, like I said, one of the biggest you know regulations that has been hard on us is the rope that you use to tie the traps together. It used to be float rope. And it wouldn't hang on bottom and everything would go smooth and you could have it for years. It wouldn't wear out, obviously, because it was floating. But um, now that has to be sinking rope. So whenever the tide comes and goes, it's chafing on bottom. And uh, we spend a lot, a lot of money replacing those all the time. And plus, we lose a lot, a lot of gear. And uh, to give you an idea how why we were against that, they're they're saying that that could get caught in the whale's mouth, but a lot of us are fishing in 400 feet of water. You know what I mean? 350, 400, even down to you know 500, 600 feet of water. So you'd have to picture that a whale is going directly on bottom with his chin scraping on bottom in order to get that in his mouth. You know, and uh, that's those are the laws that. You know, it didn't make sense to us. You know, the the float rope up and down, you know, uh, we have breakaways and stuff in that and our buoys and everything. But that was one that I've struggled with and a lot of guys have struggled with. And it's dangerous. Uh, you know, it causes injuries. It grabs stuff. Guys get hauled overboard. That sinking ground line is probably, in my opinion, the worst nightmare that we've had to deal with for a long, long time. Um I feel like I'm rambling now, so I probably should cut this off. Um, thank you for bearing with me. This is my first podcast. I had no idea what a podcast was, and uh, I guess I've stumbled through it. I'm looking at my little recorder here, and, uh, and I've stumbled through enough time, and uh, I hope it, hope I answered some questions. Hope for people that know nothing about what's going on. Um, you know, I gave you a little... Uh, view of that and i hope that uh in the future it'll be a lot different because i hope to have guests you know uh different people from around the industry where it's more of a talking back and forth kind of like old joe rogan does or something and uh you know hopefully we'll get situations set up where people can call in and and all that type of thing and if you have any questions put them out there let us know what you want to hear about um and we'll gladly caterate to it thank you for listening and uh we'll see you next time Mm -hmm.